Thanks to Grammarly for supporting Industry Focus. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. Start writing confidently by going to Grammarly.com fool to get 20% off a Grammarly premium account today. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. Today is Tuesday, May 7th, and we're talking consumer goods. I'm your host, Nick Seipel, and today I'm joined by Molly Fool contributor Dan Klein via Skype. How you doing, Dan? Uh, hey there, Nick. How are you? I'm doing great. I think this is the first episode I've done with you, Dan, where we've been remote. I, it just doesn't feel right not to have you right next to me here in the studio, uh, <laughs> well, but I'm I guess sure we'll make saw, it through. I'll, I'll be there in a couple weeks. <laughs> Yeah, well, well, yeah, we'll we'll have Dan up here up here soon, uh, and we'll we'll do podcasts again. And we'll always love having having Dan on. And today we've, we've got a, we've got a fun topic. You know, uh, you know, imitation meat has been really really uh, in the news recently. Beyond Meat IPO last week had the largest first day pop for an IPO this year, up 163 percent. So uh, you know, imitation meat has been really really hot in the streets today. But today we're going to talk about the real thing, Dan. We're coming in for the real thing. Uh, and it's a really interesting story. So, um, over the past year, uh, really beginning in October, really started to ramp up. There has been a, a pandemic across the entire hog population in China that, that's really showing ripple effects all across the world. So, just to give you some background uh, on what's going on, uh, African swine fever ha- has really ravaged uh, the Chinese hog population. Over half the world's pigs are in China, and China consumes over half the world's pork. And uh, it first started uh, presenting an issue in early August uh, when the Chinese government had said they'd effectively controlled the outbreak at a, at a small farm that had 400 hogs in Xinjiang in China. However, starting in October, it really started to ramp up. And now this disease has spread across China into Mongolia, Vietnam, and Cambodia. Over a million hogs ha- have been culled from populations, and, and we're expecting 100 times more than that before this is all over. Dan, I mean, this is a crazy story, right? I mean, I go. <laughs> yeah. It, well, you're the first person to ever put uh, the death of a million pigs and fun in the same <laughs> in the same context. But yeah, this has ramifications in that it's not just about China not having pork. If people don't have pork to eat, they're going to eat something else. Right. So there's really just going to be a, a huge effect, and it becomes like yes. The price of pork will get more expensive. The reality is that could change demand and cause other problems. But this could wipe out, you know, half of the pork population of the world, and that's not so easy to rebuild. These aren't chickens, which have a relatively quick life cycle. I'm not sure how long it takes a pig to go from birth to maturity. Uh, I'm going to guess you have a better chance of knowing that, having grown up where you did. <laughs> but it's got to be at least a year, right? Yeah, it, it's a it's a quick uh, you know a lo- much longer cycle than it might be uh, for for other meats. And just just to give you context. So uh, you know, the Department of Agriculture, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, is estimating that up to 134 million head uh, of hog in China may may be have to be culled before this is all over. That's the equivalent to the entire U.S. population uh, of, of hogs in the entire country. And the U.S. is one of the largest meat producers in the world. And implications are that. The global meat supply, you know, not just counting pork, the global meat supply could call could fall as much as five percent. You mentioned ripple effects to, to other uh, other other parts uh, of the meat industry, but also China's economy. So, when you look at uh, uh, pork, is really a significant part of China's consumer price basket. It's kind of like the CPI here in the U.S. It's a hundred twenty-eight billion dollar industry in that country. Um, and because it's such a big part of the economy, any increase in pork prices actually can cause inflation to the yuan, a China's currency. Uh, just for context, I mean, if pork prices were to double, it's probably not likely unless this really ramps up. 
But their inflation, according to Citigroup's estimates, would ramp up to 5.4%. And then above a 3% ceiling, uh, the Chinese central bank has real limitations on their ability to take action to kind of spur uh, um, the economy there. And as well, you have to layer over to the trade war negotiations that are going on this week. China has enforced uh, uh, tariffs along across a wide range of U.S. agricultural products, including meats. And then, of course, if Chinese domestic supply is hurt, and this is a, one of the largest parts of, of you know the, the country's diet, it's really going to limit uh, you know Xi Jinping's ability uh, to negotiate hard at the table, at least when it comes uh, to this part part of the industry. So it's it's really it's touching all kinds of things you would never expect. And let me put this into context for the average person. Because I know, Nick, you're sitting there, Austin's sitting there, and you're thinking, how is this going to affect me going to buy bacon or a pork roast? And the reality is the U.S. and China are competing for pork. Uh, The U.S. does not produce enough pork to meet its needs. So right now, there are suppliers that used to sell to the U.S. that are selling to China because prices have gone higher. So this has become a commodity that really there's a bit of a price war over. Right. I mean, again, you mentioned that uh, that you know uh, other meats are substitutes. So beef and chicken are both substitutes uh, for pork. So it's not only going to affect the pork market. We've seen wholesale pork prices surge 21 percent in China. Uh, the price for for ham in the U.S. is up at the highest it's been since 2015. In the EU, prices have surged 16 percent. But if you, if you look at these other markets. The USDA expects China's imports of chicken to rise nearly 70% this year, which is you know absolutely massive, um, and and it, it trickles down to you know all 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 the parts of, of the market. Dan, you had some interesting stats when we look at some uh, some restaurant companies in the U.S. and how they're already starting to price some of these into their commodity costs going into uh, 2019. Yeah, I mean McDonald's says it could increase their cost by about three percent, and it's not pork. It's that the demand for beef and chicken is going to be higher. McDonald's really only uses pork and bacon, maybe their, their sausage in the morning. It's not a huge part of their menu. It's just sort of how this all trickles down. But there's also some ways to manage this. I think we've talked about in the past, uh, Buffalo Wild Wings last year did a promotion where they charged less for boneless wings. Because at the time, they were able to buy boneless wings at a cheaper price than they were able to buy bone-in wings. That, that may have changed. The, the price of bone-in wings has actually collapsed a little bit. But basically, McDonald's might give consumers incentive to eat something else. There might be part of the logic you mentioned Beyond Meat before, why more companies are, are introducing alternative products. Because if you can take away 5% of demand but still do the sales, then you can really curtail some of the damage this is going to do. Right, Dan. And as how as we've seen uh, these restaurant companies talk about their commodity prices going up, obviously these folks that are downstream that are selling these commodities are benefiting from these increased prices. I mean, particularly as you mentioned, these chicken producers have been the ones who have benefited the most because they can ramp up uh, their production to meet this demand uh, the quickest. It's just chickens take the are the quickest to take from. Uh, you know, uh, to, to grow them and, and bring them to market. So, so we've seen. I mean, these chicken producers have, have really surged just since the start of the year. You've got Sanderson Farms, which is one of the largest chicken producers in the U.S., up 55 percent year to date. Pilgrim's Pride up 85 percent year to date. Tyson also heavily exposed to chicken, but more of a diversified meat producer, up 44 percent. And then JBS, uh, which is, is is traded on a, a foreign exchange, but also it owns Pilgrim's Pride, based in Brazil, largest global meat packer. Uh, in the world, up 86%. So you're seeing all these producers, uh, you know, um, 
that are benefiting from this supply coming off the market. You know, we talk about it, the energy shows sometimes when oil supply comes off the market. Obviously, the the producers of oil really benefit, and this is yet another uh, example of that. Uh, you know, these meat producers really the, the market has, has really come to them in, in a really nice way. They're starting to invest uh, to build up their supply. And you know, there's a chance that going forward, they could take meaningful market share in China. These U.S. and Brazilian producers do have a cost advantage, and now that that supply is off the market, there's a chance they could gain a foothold there. Um, so, really, an interesting. Yeah. Uh, it, it also becomes a matter of education. Mm-hmm. So now you're going to have people who are eating pork sort of be forced into trying chicken or ground beef or fish or whatever else it is. Chicken is likely going to be the cheapest there. And people might find that they're just as happy eating chicken as they were eating pork. So there could be some long-term benefits of this. The other issue is when you're manufacturing and you have to increase capacity, there's a huge expense to that. And if volume doesn't keep up, then you end up with idled factories. All you need to to raise more chickens is space, and you can adjust your production from a year-to-year basis based on needs without there being the huge cost. Because at the end of the day, you hatch a chicken, raise a chicken, and then eat the chicken. There's no more chicken. It's gone. Right, yeah. So, so uh, this trickles down all, all over the market, and this could be a, a multi-year lingering issue. Uh, so, the breeding sow population in China down 21 uh, percent year over year, um, but you know that doesn't mean rush out and buy these chicken producers right now because in the short term, um, it, you know it's great for these folks; they can ramp up uh, production quickly. Um, however, you know that the other side of the coin is true. Competitors can also ramp up their production quite quickly. Um, you know there. Uh, some other companies that could benefit, though, you haven't seen a pop yet. You've got you know feed producers, so like Archer's Daniels, Midland, and Bunge, that uh, as these uh, you know both chicken producers and hog producers in the U.S. ramp up their production, they're going to need to feed these animals, and so uh, there's some chance that we could see some trickle down. But really, uh, the best bet that I I, I would see is going to be these diversified meat producers like Tyson and JPS. And Tyson has been putting uh, some investment into that uh, just last month. Uh, they secured approval for two plants in Iowa to begin shipping pork to China. That's the first such approval since 2016, according to the FDA. Um, so, really, interesting opportunity, uh, you know, for these meat producers, an industry that's really underfollowed. Uh, something to pay attention to for investors. It, it becomes kind of a race because we know there's X amount of pigs that aren't coming to market. So, if you can start today. But again, it's not a simple process. You have to produce the pigs and raise them and grow them. And there's actually a significant investment in feed and care and all the other things. And then you have to hope that a year later, whatever the exact life life cycle is, there's still going to be that demand. So I think there's going to be some caution. And you're probably more likely to have a shortage of pork and higher prices in the for the next couple of years, probably. Yeah, going to be interesting to follow. Again, we mentioned it, there are some overlays into you know China's broader economy and into the into the you know the, the tariff war that's going on between the U.S. and China. So something to follow. You know, if any of our listeners are interested in a deeper dive, you know, in any of these meat companies, would be happy to do that. You know, tweet us at MF, MF Industry Focus. Let us know you're interested, and we will see if we can uh, do a deeper dive on some of these guys. Um, we're going to talk on the back half of the show about a comment Charlie Munger made over the weekend about Costco and Amazon. But first, a message from our sponsor. Thanks to Grammarly for supporting Industry Focus. Grammarly is a communication tool that helps people improve their writing to be mistake-free, clear, and effective. They encourage everyone, even the best students and top professionals, to use Grammarly to do their best work and accomplish even more of their goals. Grammarly is a writing assistant that makes you look and sound smarter. 
easily improve yourself and your communication at school, work, and almost anywhere else with Grammarly. Their free product reviews critical spelling and grammar, and Grammarly Premium looks out for spelling, grammar, plus advanced punctuation, structure, style within context, vocabulary suggestions, conciseness, and readability for different occasions, from a business proposal to an essay to a casual blog post. You can use Grammarly to accomplish your writing goals, you know, including fixing your email typos on your cell phone and polishing up on your resume to kickstart your career. We use Grammarly at The Fool to make sure our writing is quality and makes mistake-free. I think Dan himself uses Grammarly in his own articles uh, that he writes that go on fool.com. Uh, so, 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 so there is no better product than Grammarly because I'm writing three or four articles a day, sometimes on a very quick deadline, and Grammarly picks up all the little things. You know, Maybe you write the, the, and you didn't realize it. Maybe you put a comma in the wrong place. It fixes all of that. So by the time our copy editors and editors get it, all the little annoying stuff is fixed. Right, so that's can't get a better endorsement than that from our own Dan Klein. If you're interested in uh, in trying out Grammarly, go to grammarly.com/fool to get 20% off your Grammarly Premium account today. That's grammarly.com/fool for 20% off your Grammarly Premium account. All right, Dan. So on the back half of the show, I wanna I wanna kind of unpack uh, this quote we got from Charlie Munger over the weekend. He sat down uh, for an interview with Jason Zweig uh, of the Wall Street Journal. And uh, we got a nice little nugget out of there that I, I want to kind of kind of break apart, and we'll, uh, we'll read it to you, and, and we'll, we'll kind of break it down. So, so uh, Jason Zweig asked, "Do any companies have a sustainable moat against competition from the likes of Amazon? Who is Amazon proof?" And Mr. Munger replied, "I think Amazon has more to fear from Costco than Costco has to fear from Amazon, because Costco has a better warehouse situation, uh, much cheaper, plus a public t- uh, a public that totally believes anything they sell will be high quality and low price." And so they're just the sleeping giant. They're coming late to any sort of delivery system, but in the end, they'll be more efficient and they're already more trusted. So I would say the figures show that Costco has nothing to fear from Amazon. So Dan, uh, just off the top, you know, what was your immediate reaction whenever I sent you over this quote as we got ready for this episode? So, so I've written about this many times that Amazon and Costco pretty much coexist. If you go to Costco physically. It's not to buy one thing. It's not for like a small, like you, you might jump on Amazon because you need a pen or paper towels or whatever it is. When you go to Costco, it tends to be for a large purchase. But what Munger is saying is something I never really thought about. There are 570-something Costco locations in the U.S. and Puerto Rico. That covers a huge amount of the country. So while almost all of their business or most of their business is people going into the store and or the warehouse, as they call them, and bringing items out, they have the ability to very quickly ramp up a delivery operation. And and to put it in context, Amazon has like 45, 50 warehouses. Costco has 10 times as many. So their coverage, their ability to sort of adapt, if people say, I'm not leaving my homes, I want a robot drone to deliver, and I want Costco to sell me one item at a time, their ability to do that is, it's going to take Amazon a really long time to get there. And their holdings, Whole Foods, is not a great facility to to modify. Whereas a 150,000 square foot bare warehouse, you could easily take 20,000 square feet of every Costco and make a robot-based fulfillment center, which is actually technology we saw at Shop Talk this year. So there's off-the-shelf stuff they could buy where they could cut into Amazon, though though historically they've been a very non-aggressive company. They move very, very slowly. Right. And another thing when we're talking about comparing Amazon and Costco that I really, I really want to call out 
is we have to compare like for like. Okay, so AWS uh, really there's no there's no imitate you know there's no comp for that uh, on the side of Costco. And when you think about Amazon's business from a profitability point of view, it drives substantially all the net income, all all the bottom line for the company. Uh, and so, I mean, if AWS was out there by itself, I mean that that company on its own would be many hundreds of million market cap, uh, billion, excuse me, market cap. But when you but when you compare them like for like on on the retail side, that's where the, the competition or the, the the comparison really starts to to lean Costco's way a little bit. You know, core core Amazon uh, is profitable, but uh, but by 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 a thread. You but you compare that to to Costco, their core business is really driven. Uh, almost 100%. All the profitability of the business is driven by the membership fees that the company generates. So they're very reliably profitable year over year. You compare those markets; both of them have very, very high renewal rates for their membership programs, but a little bit of a different style there. When you when you compare the different strategies there, Dan, uh, what do you think are the pros and cons of each approach for the businesses? So Costco makes about 75% of its its money from memberships, and their goal is to take every single cost out of the items they're selling you. So it's a limited selection. The stores aren't pretty. You don't get a bag. There's not a lot of people working on the floor. It's pretty much every lack of frill you could possibly have. Whereas Amazon takes a, we will sell you anything, everything, and they've only just begun sort of culling their merchandise for things that are hard to ship and hard to sell. But both of them sort of work hard to engender loyalty. Costco doesn't care if you only go there once or twice a year, but when you go there, it has to be like a good enough experience that when it comes time to renew your membership, you're willing to do that. So it's not just value. It's also the fun of seeing something, you know, maybe you're not going to buy the 10-foot teddy bear for your, your girlfriend, but it's kind of fun to talk about it. Maybe it's looking at the samples, all this sort of other, maybe it's a cheap hot dog. Costco has built an experience that fuels you renewing your membership, whereas Amazon actually wants you to use the service multiple times a week, and that's where your bond is. So it's really two different takes at sort of how to build loyalty. Sure, yeah. I think of my own personal habits on Amazon. Folks talk about how Amazon's the first place people go when they're looking to buy a product online. So it's a very, at least for me, a very surgical approach to when I buy on Amazon. When I when I'm in Costco, I'm kind of just walking around googly eyed. Oh, look at this over here. Look at this over there. And I always end up with three or four more things in my basket uh, than I ever planned to. And I think both strategies work. And I think both strategies have really built trust with customers. Um, in that, you know, when I go to Costco, I'll tell you, I, I don't price check. I, I just assume it's going to be the cheapest price. When I go to Amazon, I assume it's going to give me the fastest delivery time, going to be the most convenient way to get it to me. And I think both these companies have done an outstanding job of when a customer thinks of them, they know exactly what to expect, and they more often than not get what they're looking for. There's been a lot of studies on price and which is cheaper, and it really depends how you look at it. Because if you're willing to buy 800 aspirin, then your per aspirin price is probably cheaper at Costco. If that's impractical for you, it's impractical for most people, then Amazon might be a cheaper price, even though it's actually a slightly higher price. So it really depends on your needs. I shop at both. For our main home in here in West Palm Beach, Florida, I don't have room to store a pallet of paper towels just to save a couple of bucks. Whereas we have a vacation home where I have a shed that I could literally put a two-year supply of something that's and I'm pointing as if the shed is right over there. <laughs> I have a two-year supply of you know cleaning supplies and other things that don't go bad just so I don't have to worry about you know do I have toilet paper when I visit month once a month. Right. It's. It- 
I also am a member of both. I also use both. I get all my dog food, and you know, I have a big dog, so I get all my dog food at Costco and uh, and that sort of thing. But I, you know, maybe maybe one of these days, these companies will be much more antagonistic than they are today. And kind of you know, uh, Charlie Munger's prediction there that they really will you know be at odds with one another, and uh, and you know, whether Costco will have the advantage or not, we'll see. Today, you know, you, you pulled a stat uh, for me from the Seattle Times uh, and, and Morgan Stanley that suggests 45% of Costco members are also Amazon Prime members. That both you and myself w- would be in that category, and uh, it seems to be that neither fo- neither person or neither of those groups are, are looking to spend more on one than the other. It's just they, they serve different needs for the population, and you know they're yeah, great at it. It's absolutely a different need. Amazon is my everyday. I am walking around the house. I see that I'm out of the flavor of tea I like, or I'm down to the last one. I jump on. I order on Amazon. Costco is an event. Once a month, you go to Costco. You 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 bring the kid. You, you bring your wife, or in your case, your girlfriend, and you don't have a kid. And maybe you have lunch there, and maybe you buy a bag of candy you otherwise wouldn't have because they had samples out on the floor. Maybe they have books or a kayak. It's it's definitely part entertainment, part shopping. Where these two companies become antagonistic is if consumer behavior changes. Costco has standalone stores. It's not affected by mall traffic. And they have not shown a drop drop in traffic. In fact, they've shown increases in traffic sort of during this whole retail apocalypse. But if consumers decide, I don't leave my house for shopping – or set a much higher bar for that, then the company has to change its experience. And that might mean figuring out how to get you those values and delivering. And they have the real estate for that. They have the infrastructure for that. But they're not going to make a change until it's absolutely demanded. Everyone would argue that they waited maybe two or three years too late to go into delivery, but their numbers don't reflect that. They've maintained an 89 to 90% renewal rate for year over year for a very long time, and that includes raising prices a couple of years ago. So as long as that metric stays the same, there's no incentive for Costco to make big, expensive changes. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think we're going to see these folks uh, become directly competitive with one. At least, you know, be going after each other. You know, go after each other's throats anytime soon. Uh, but it is interesting. You know, uh, Costco clearly has a lag when it comes to being the first place that people come to when it comes to buying things online. Amazon is the first place to go for that. But you could argue that Costco, when it comes to their physical presence, uh, when it, that they have a more robust presence closer to the customer. That uh, you know could be leveraged down the line uh, to, to to push an advantage for them. It's going to be really interesting to see and a really interesting observation uh, uh, from Mr. Munger. Um, uh, you know, as we go away, I kind of wanted to throw up another question for you, Dan. Uh, the next question that uh, Jason Zweig asked Charlie was, "Hey, what about Berkshire? Right? Okay, if Co- if Costco, you know, if Amazon uh, should be afraid of Costco, should Berkshire, uh, you know, should Berkshire be afraid of Amazon?" He said, "Everybody else has a lot to fear from Amazon." He just named, you know, he didn't name Berkshire. He just named Costco. So, you know, Charlie said it. Everybody has something to fear from Amazon. So, so Dan, you know, as we go away, just a little fun. What is your boldest prediction for the next industry that Amazon might come to disrupt? So, I think Amazon largely has to go into industries that are already broken, because if you're executing well, and we've seen this in retail, the retailers who have executed well, Best Buy, for example have done fine. I mean, Best Buy was a struggling company that made major changes and competes well with Amazon. But I think what's broken is pharmacy. 
And if you look at Amazon, they have your credit card information. They have all of the customer service help. They own PillPack, so they have the, the mechanism in place to get you drugs. And they haven't quite figured out how to connect that, but I assume at some point my health insurance is going to be incentivizing me to go to Amazon because that will be the cheapest way to get drugs. Right now, you could argue that Costco might be the cheapest way to get drugs, and still it's not a huge part of their business. Yeah, I, I, I think you know, getting in that pharmacy space as healthcare becomes a bigger share of the economy, clearly something Amazon is going after. I'll, I'll give you, for my, for my bold prediction, I think Amazon is going to go after image-based search. So I think they're going to go after the Pinterest, Instagram market of the world. As you see, uh, have seen over the past year, Amazon has really pushed into the the purposeful search uh, aspect of the market, really uh, growing their advertising presence and taking some market share away from Google. Um, and uh, again, it comes to a lot of what Amazon has done throughout its history, whether it's through AWS or the recent moves when it comes to to uh, freight brokerage services for third party sellers. They've really uh, kind of solved some problems uh, uh, for third party folks and. Uh, the problem that Amazon hasn't yet solved is that discovery uh, buying process that you really get from something out of like a Pinterest or an Instagram. And I, and I think, given that they've show, already shown a move uh, to go after that purposeful search part of the category, uh, I, I would really be interesting to see Amazon go after that more discovery aspect, image search aspect of the market. We'll see how it goes, but Amazon is always so, disrupting everybody. So uh, you know, we'll see. So some of that ties to technology. And one of the things you and I have talked about before is I bought pants using a tailor that I set up on my phone and had to spin around, and, and the pants were okay, but it didn't. Amazon, at some point, will be the leader of that. So you say image-based search, but I think it's more driven image-based, where I'm going to show Amazon, this is what I wear, and Amazon, and these are things I like. And Amazon is not only going to show me some things that are like it or fit that mold, they're actually going to show me how I look in those things. So that's sort of where the real disruption could come in. Because think about it now. How absurd is it to drive to the mall, go to Macy's, pick through some, some things, take them into a room and try them on, when realistically, robots can do that better and you don't have to go anywhere to try things on. And stuff should just show up that fits you. Yeah, so... Jeff Bezos, if you're listening, here's a few ideas for the for the next industries for Amazon to run into. Dan, thanks again uh, for coming on the show. Looking forward to having you on again soon. I'll see you soon. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against the stocks discussed. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Austin Morgan for his work behind the glass. For Dan Klein, I'm Nick Seipel. Thanks for listening, and Fool on! <laughs>